Praise the Lord. Good morning, all. I uh, just let you get your notes. Amen. Well, it's good to be back. We've been away. Myself and Jeanette have been away a long time, too long, a long trip. It was six Sundays, and it was very good. It was a good trip. Went to several different countries, five or six different countries. Um, saw a lot and experienced a lot, learned a lot. Um, some good memories. We began in Romania. Uh, which was excellent trip. The leaders there are following us online. They follow the messages on Israel. So we were able to pick up with that. Same thing in Armenia. In fact, the Armenian church is doing exceptionally well. On the Sunday morning there, we, it's a small church. I think most of you know what's happening there. It's an underground church. You're not allowed to have any form of Pentecostal or evangelical work there. The Armenian church is an underground church, and I was particularly pleased to be with them. On the Sunday morning, they had a lot of people, a lot of lost people. Um, and that's good work for Armenia, you know, because you're not officially allowed to share. But I think they had about 15 unsaved people in the meeting, and we I've never done an evangelistic meeting there before. But I kind of took my time and explained the gospel. And it's just so nice to be in a place where the gospel is not preached. And at the end of that meeting, I gave a response. And guess who responded? Every single visitor came forward. Every person. And I, I was shocked. I didn't know what to do. It kind of took me aback a bit. I wasn't ready for it. But I thought, Lord, thank God for our patience with this church, for our perseverance with this church. And I went to the pastor after him. I said, what was that? He said, well, there you go. He's a good pastor. So I, I would be very happy that he will follow up those people. So thank God for that. We went from there to Brussels. And I think that was probably the most moving time, I suppose, for us. In Brussels, there's an organization called PEM, Pentecostal European Mission. And that's about 60 groups 16 non-church organizations that are involved in expanding the church within Europe. And that was just so effective, really. I mean, let, let me just get, give you an example about what's going on out there. We had dinner with one of the leaders there. His name's Tarek. He's from Afghanistan. And he believes that God has called him to reach the Taliban. Any, does anybody want to join him? <laughs> Tough job that, you know. And just in case you're a Christian, you think your Christian life is hard. I sat with him and began just, to, you know, tell me about the Taliban. How on earth do you reach the Taliban? And he said, well, nobody wants to go. Nobody wants to go. And he has sent, I think it was 25, 30 missionaries up into the tribal areas and was it eight or nine of them had their throats cut? And he was telling me about them. Some of them lived and worked with him for a while, and then the day would come when they were going to be sent out, and the next one sent out. And he's just gathering some more leaders to send out. And it's just so different talking to someone like that, because he was explaining to me the great difficulty. How would you like, Gordon, if you were an apostle, to send someone to their death? You see what I mean? How would you feel about that? And that's what he was talking to us about. In fact, he talked to the whole group and he said, I will go back and I will commission another five or six people. 
And depending on their color, sorry folks, just telling you the truth, it's a wicked world. Depending on their color, if they're white people and they get murdered, you'll hear about it. But typically, if they're from any other nation, you'll not hear about it. Because the Indian government won't kick up a fuss. The Pakistani government won't kick up a fuss. The African governments won't kick up a fuss. But Britain will. And America will. And so that is typically what happens. And a lot of them are not white, obviously, going into the Taliban areas. So that was just so moving to, to see that guy. He sent his own son. This guy sent his own son up into the Taliban areas. And he had just come back, I think, several months ago. And the Taliban knew them, saw them, and shot the car. Forty bullet holes in the car, but his son lived. I can't remember if there was anybody else killed in that skirmish. He, he, he was just one guy out of many guys working in underground circumstances around the world. Uh, we spent a week there. Then we went to Germany. Now, we were working in evangelism there. I loved it, absolutely loved it. Uh, I was very impressed with the German Christians, very serious and highly committed people. I've had a fascination with the Second World War for a long time. Um, I, I'm just fascinated with everything that happened there, and I've always wanted to go to Berlin, and that's where the meeting was. So we were able to get two days at the end of it before we went to our next meeting. And I wanted to, um, actually I wanted to find Hitler's bunker, you know? and get down to the Reichstag building, which is, they accused the Jews of burning the Reichstag building, and that was the start of the Second World War, or the persecution of the Jews, shall we say, by Hitler, the Holocaust. And I just wanted to go back over those things that I'd you know, studied for so long, and just see the real thing. So, it's kind of a weird event, wasn't it, Jeanette? We, we, we moved hotels into the city. I got into the hotel, and I got a map. I thought, right, Hitler's bunker. Where's Hitler's bunker? And I got my phone, I got the GPS thing, you know, and I got the maps, Google Maps. Right, Hitler's bunker, Hitler's bunker. There's my hotel, there's the thing. So I said, oh, it's very near. I thought, it's very near. I went over to the window, it's here. It was actually right outside our hotel. It's kind of scary. Could you put the first slide up, guys? Take a look at this. That's it. How would you like to have a grave like that? It's a car park. When the Russians came in and Hitler had shot himself and poisoned himself at the same time in a bunker which is right underneath that ground, when the Russians came in they decided they didn't want any memory of him whatsoever. So they bulldozed and flattened what was on top there, the chancellery, and they covered it all over. And the only thing that actually is there is a little plaque on the side with a map explaining the different areas where the bunkers were and where Hitler was. It just, the, the only reason I mention this is this. We had just come from talking to martyrs. Martyrs who you will see in heaven one day. People who for the love of God and the love of the lost had their throats cut. They will never be forgotten. They will never be forgotten. But he will be forgotten. Dead, buried, and there'll be no memory of you, Hitler, because we don't want it. And it just, it's such a stark contrast. Really made me pause for thought. What kind of people are we? How committed are we? And what will be remembered of us? What will be remembered of you? And when I think of Tarek sending his own son to die, 
And I think of him going back, because, bye! Going back to Scotland, bye! And it's always a different kind of spirit within those guys, because I met some other similar people in Singapore. There's a depth, there's a, uh, how can I put it? There's a sincerity there, a reality there that we don't have. What do you complain about? Complain about the church? Complain about life? Complain about the weather? Complain about the rain? What? And it really convicted me to think when people like this are alive and well and sacrificing their lives, we need to be very grateful. Amen. Amen. Very grateful. And if God should call us to go to such a thing, in fact, I shared with you before, years ago, 15-something years ago, an Indian guy, and remember the Tamil Tigers? Remember the trouble where Christians were being killed in Uttar Pradesh area of India? You will remember that. There was a lot of trouble then, and the mission organizations within the UK, they had lost 8 out of 28 missionaries had been killed. And I got a request of me to go there, you know? And I remember that day. I remember the challenge to me, because it was a bishop, a guy with 30,000 members. He came and said, I want you to do my conference. I could see my head coming off, you know what I mean? And I didn't answer him straight away. But I went away, and I just thought, just for a few seconds, a little stroll across the church, and it's one of those moments. Will you go? Will you actually go? I decided yes, so I went back to him, and I said, yeah, I'm happy to to, to, to go. (laughs) And I just spoke to my overseer, Ray Belfield, same overseer today, and he said, oh, no, you're not. You're not going, because we need you. Sorry, you're not going. I'm not letting you go because in case you get killed because we don't want you to die there and we need you to do A, B, C. So I thought, okay. (laughs) I thought, okay, no problem. But I will go. It's kind of scary, you know, because the, the world is changing at such a rapid pace. Persecution of Christians is really kicking in, isn't it? starting in the political arena and, and, and overspilling in all manner of ways. And funny how the tables are turning. Well, I heard a radio program this week about the whole gay thing within Britain, you know. And the, the, the radio presenter was, was putting his perspective. And he said this, Isn't it ironic how the gay community, in his words, have been persecuted for so many years and that gay marriages have not been allowed to take place? And he said this, Isn't it ironic that the tables are just about to completely turn. It will now be the Christians who are persecuted. Because David Cameron, if you know last week, said he thinks it will probably happen that it will be illegal not to marry gays in church. That's what he thinks. He thinks that's inevitable. So they will come to people like me and they will say, this is what you're going to do. Well, we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. So we'll see where that takes us. But isn't it ironic that that even on our national radio programs, they're saying that persecution of Christians is now here. And it will start in the political arena and then probably, you know, envelop our society because these are the last days. So that's just a little update on, on what we did and where we went. It was a fantastic trip. I'm delighted we did it, but hopefully there won't be one quite as long as that again. Turning your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. A famous scripture. You will know it well. You will all remember it, I'm sure. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. A memory verse. 
And my God will meet all your needs according to his, the, the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Do you believe that? Amen. Do you really believe it? Yes. Are you sure? Yes. I'm not so sure. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that? Amen. It's getting quieter. <laughs> I'm not so sure. God will meet all my needs. Look, please look up. Are all your needs met? Are all your needs met? The answer is no. You have many needs. You have emotional needs, relationship needs, financial needs. Some people here are sick. You've got health needs. And you've got to stop. And it's so easy just to read Scripture and to go with the flow and go with the gang and everybody shout hallelujah and actually not maybe see the, the, everything that's being said here or the way to access the promises of God, which is our topic this morning. It's very dangerous if you take a Scripture like that, for example, and just pull it out of the Bible and, you know, stick it on yourself. Because this is a promise, absolutely, but as Pastor Tom was sharing last week, there are conditional promises and unconditional promises. So I don't know if God's going to meet all your needs. I don't know. Because you might not fulfill the, the conditions. And so this promise may not apply to you. So be careful. For example, just go back a few verses. Look at verse 16. Philippians chapter 4 verse 16. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is, is, is more that which will be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant what? Offering. These were people who were making offerings. They were tithing, obviously. Offerings as well. And acceptable sacrificial offerings, free will offerings, sacrificial offerings, pleasing to God. Verse 19, and my God will meet all your needs. Paul is talking to a very specific group of people who are fulfilling certain commitments contained in approach to that promise. And so he is unambiguously able to say to them, I know that God will meet your needs because I know what you're doing. Do you understand me? When you handle scripture, be careful not to take a glib approach to it. Over the years in this church, we've done so many series, haven't we? And you guys are absolutely fantastic. You're a pleasure to minister to because you listen so well, you listen so intently, and are very sincere. And this is just a great church to, to preach in, to teach in. When we did, remember, we did end times. Remember, we did the relationship stuff. We just did Israel. And as I look back, I'm very happy with you, except for one thing. <laughs> Except for one series, Leanne. The one we didn't do. You got it at home, I got it at home, but we never produced it. We produced every other thing except this one. Which one was that? <laughs> the promised life. The promised life. And you know, 
Preaching on Sunday for me is like having a baby. Now the women say, no, it's not, Pastor Mike. You don't know what having a baby is like. Preaching on Sunday is like having a baby. And what I mean is this. On Monday, I'll go for my walk. I'll get the Word. And that Word will be growing in me. And I will prepare the stuff. I'll come in here on Sunday. And I will deliver. Listen, when I'm leaving, I know that I've delivered the baby. I know that the baby's gone. I know that you've got it. But I also know when you don't get it. And when we did the promised life, I distinctly remember being very frustrated because I left with the baby. I left with the word and that's just frustrating to me because I need to figure out why. Here we are, Lord. I believe you want these people to know about the power of promises. And yet for some reason, I feel that that is, is still in me. So I, I was delighted actually, you know, hurt I suppose in some ways last week when I came back and I heard Tom on this subject and I just thought to myself, God, are you back again? Are you back again to, to talk to these people again? Because I know they didn't get it. We did end times three times over a five-year period. And Pastor Tom said this to me one day. He said, when you taught end times the first time, the people thought and went, oh, it's good, yeah, it's good. And the second time they went, yeah, it's quite good. And the third time, boom, everybody got it. And you see, with some things, by the grace of God, you need to, there's a lot of repetition in your Bible. A lot of repetition. Because sometimes you don't get it. And I, with all my heart, I don't just believe, I know that there's a critical element missing here in, in us as a congregation, with regards to our understanding of what the promises are and the centrality of a promise-led life. And that was really, remember, we did it about five years ago, I think. We called it the promised life. But actually what it is, is a promise-led life. And let me begin by explaining. Could I have my second slide up there? You see, in this, just sitting here this morning, Many of you are led different ways. Some of you are career-led because mommy said you had to do this or daddy said you had to do that and you ended up in a path and now the structure that you work for is leading you. I was in that situation. I had to pluck myself out of that situation. So many people are like that. This can be good and this can be bad. It can be good because if you tell me that God told me to do this, then I'm 100% fine and so are you. But if you don't tell me that God told you, that's where we start. So being career-led can be good, if you know what I mean, if God's put you there, but it can also be bad. because But you'll hit 50 or 60 before you realize the problem. Because you'll get swamped with the issues of life and, you know, everything that life throws at you, mortgages, families, everything else. Other people are others led, led by others. That's also good and bad. The Bible says we should follow people, right? Discipleship and all that. That can be good, but it can also be very bad. If other people, sometimes bad people, wonky people, not leading you correctly, you get into bad company and you end up being misled. Now, you think of yourself, and we'll come to promises in a moment, but what or who is leading your life. Career? Others? Some people have no leadership. They're like a ship without an anchor, tossed around on the sea, as Paul would say. Some people are self-led. 
But Scripture to me is very, very clear. Some people devil-led, like the guy in the States, right? Who just shot all those kids. Terrible situation. But the goal of God is this last one, that we would actually be promise-led people. And I'll explain just through the course of this morning what that means. Oh, yeah, yeah. Everybody look. Nice, crisp, five-pound note. Okay? Kehiso, I promise you that I will give you this. Okay? If you do one thing, shout hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) You've got to understand how promises work. Okay? Because now Kehiso's got a a bit of a, a tizzy going on in his head. He just said that. And then he didn't do it. I did what he asked. He promised me he didn't come through. But you've got to be careful what you hear, how you hear it, what your interpretation is. For me, and I believe I'm 100% right, promises are primary to God, but they're not to you. God promised the people of Israel a land, right? What was the land called? The promised land. The promised land. So, I mean, how, how much bigger do we want it written? You see, the promised land in the Old Testament is a mirror image of your life in the new. Land in the old, life in the new. It was tied to promise. Everything that I'm going to give to you is connected to the promise. It's a promised land. And it's the same with your life. It's actually a promised life if we can but see it. And in my opinion, the, 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 the greater the blessing that God is trying to get to you, often the longer the period of waiting you may have to do, Kehiso. The greater the blessing, the longer the wait, the more patience will be required. But speaking for myself, every good thing in my life, every major thing that has been significant has come that way. I've had a word. I've known the word, and then I've had to wait. Knowing that God promised me, and yet not seeing that manifestation. But good things come this way. Now, God is no respecter of persons. It means that every person in this room is equally loved. There's no question about that. And there are, of course, thousands of promises here, available to all of us. But folks, listen to me. Why are there so much differences in here? Why are so many Christians blessed, blessed out of their socks, and other Christians don't seem to get nothing? Other Christians scratch out a living, spiritually, or even practically. Why is there such differences in the kingdom? Well, the answer is some people, like these guys Paul was talking to, some people understand the promises. Some people understand the conditions of the promises. I I am not an academic in any way. I failed all my exams in school. But when it comes to Scripture, I am an absolute geek. I can't help myself. And when I got saved, I tell you, study, I studied like a lunatic. After I finished Bible college, I literally locked myself away for a year in self-study on my own in a room. 
looking at the doctrines and the people and the patriarchs and everything that happened because I, I, I'm not a quick learner and I needed to get it. I wanted it. I wanted it. I wanted to understand it. And I remember when I finished the patriarchs, you know, working through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, and I got all the, the lives and what they did, something just slapped me in the face. And it was this, Joshua and Isaac. I had listed the battles that Abraham had, the battles that Moses had, the battles, and all the troubles and all the strife, and then you get Joshua. No problem. Joshua had an easy life. Joshua had two big battles, Jer Jericho and Ai. But an easy life. And Isaac was the same. Isaac had an easy life. And when you, if you did the study, if you laid them all out, you would see, hang on a minute. W what's the story? Why is there a difference? Why are some people so blessed and all the rest of these guys struggle so much? And there was this old guy in our church, an old learned man. And I went to him one day and I said, hey, I got a question. I'm doing some study. I'm doing the patriarchs at the moment. And I've just noticed this. Joshua and Isaac. Blessed lives, man. Why did God treat them differently? And that old guy said, Shh, they weren't treated differently. They understood the promise. And he said, what's Isaac called? Isaac? No, what does Isaac mean? Son of promise. Son of promise. And what about Joshua? Joshua chapter 1. What did God do? Oh, of course, God gave Joshua promise. That's right. And Joshua obeyed the conditions of the promise. And that guy said to me, you've got to understand, those two men understood the principles of inheriting the promises of God. You, are you with me? The, the same you know, blessings were actually available to everybody, to all the patriarchs, and the same blessings are available to you. So it's not that God is showing favoritism. That's not the case. It's that we do not qualify like these Philippians qualified. We do not qualify because either we don't appreciate the blessings or understand the centrality of a promise-led life. Do not answer this question because I don't want to embarrass anybody. What promises has God made you? What promises are you aiming for? I know what the answers will be. They will be very few. Very few. But the truth about the real Christian life, folks, is that it is a promised land. And it is a promised Christian life. And the methodologies, the mechanism of God for growing you is going to be through promises, whether you like it or not. How did he... At the risk of repeating myself, <laughs> but believe me, I need to repeat myself. How did God bring them into the promised land? Through a... For a promise. How is God going to advance your life? How are you going to grow? How are you going to change? Believe me, it will be through a promise. And God is your father, your spiritual father. You had an earthly father. You've got a spiritual father. The father of your spirit. And he looks at you. You're his child, his creation. And he wants to grow you up. Now, I guess it would help us to understand the enormous effect of promise, uh, that a promise can have on you. Look, if you've got a bad child, let's say the child's running riot, running all over the place, won't calm down. You, as a good father, you could say to the child, right, listen, 
If you're good for seven days, for one week, I'm going to take you to Toys R Us and buy you a toy. Okay? And what happens inside that boy is, he wants to be bad. I want to run, I want to do what? And but in the other half of his mind, he's thinking, but I want the toy. And the promise starts to work. The promise starts to go to work in the mind of the rebellious child. And he starts to balance it up. And slowly, you begin to die. And the rebellion starts to die. This is God's mechanism, God's way through promises. Because you're a child. Child, never called the adults of God, always the children of God. And the boy at a certain point says, do you know what? Hey, I'll just be good and wait for Saturday and I'll get my promise. I will get that reward. But then things happen through that week. He learns that, hey, being good's all right. Being good is good. I don't get all the hassle. I don't. And through the father's involvement, the child grows. And so the effect of a promise is subtle. And it's absent, I'm afraid, in so many lives. Absent in Christian lives. You can see it. It's conspicuous because of its absence. So my point is this. When God makes you a promise, and He says, I promise, you just feel it in your gut. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. That promise has the power to change your behavior. Right? And goodness knows Christians struggle with their behavior. Why? (laughs) What's missing? Christians struggle to grow from faith to faith or glory to glory because the promise is missing. The promise of God active in your life has got the power to change your behavior. It's got the power to change the atmosphere. You know we carry an atmosphere with us, don't we? Everywhere you go. Some people, you know, you meet them and they're all doom and gloom. And other people are full of faith and full of, you know, glory and hope. We carry an atmosphere. But see, when a Christian has a promise inside them, they're alive. There's a living hope. There's a living expectation. It changes them. It motivates them. And truly is a, a living thing. The Word of God is living. I repeat, promises are conspicuous by their absence because we see people, so many people, struggle to move on in God. And I think this is just one of the reasons, many reasons, but one of the reasons. Just to give you a a, a human parallel here. Within the United Kingdom, how much money and benefits do you think don't get claimed, that could be claimed, every year? A lot, correct? (laughs) Give me a figure. A million. We've got one million. Any advances on one million? Four million. Try this. Eighty billion! 80 billion promises in the United Kingdom, benefits from the government that are available to 80 billion doesn't get claimed. And do you know why? Because the forms, the qualif- to get qualified, it's not easy. To qualify for the benefit, I got to do some work. I got to change, I got to go down there, I got to do this, I've got to do that. And people don't want even to be bothered to qualify. 
Can't be bothered with the forms. Can't be bothered with the, whatever the government asks of me. That's why. Now, it's not the only reason, but it's a, it's a major reason. And so it is with the promises of God. We maybe can't be bothered or don't understand what we're missing. 80 billion, not 1 million guys. 80 billion. We don't know what we're missing. So what Tom said last week is a very good foundation. There are conditional promises and unconditional promises. It's not the only two types, actually. There's, there's others, but it's not important for today. And just consider that in your mind. There are conditional promises. The Bible's bursting with them. And there's unconditional promises. The difference is this. The unconditional promises, like Jesus Christ will return. It's unconditional. He's coming back. It doesn't matter what you do, what you say. No one can change that. It's unconditional. It's a promise. Okay? But the conditional ones are, are really the ones that apply to us. Uh, and our life and everything that God would want to give us. Next slide, please, there. So there's the structure, folks. God gives you a promise, Gehiso. He puts something before you. But then the promise doesn't come. <coughs> and then I'm left with a massive problem. Do I judge God? How am I going to behave? See, I tell you, God promised them a land flowing with what? Milk and honey. Then what did he give them? Manna and quail. You got a promise, right? Milk and honey. And you get up in the morning and you get manna and quail. So there's a, there's a mechanism here. I want you to get that. I want you to see this because this is going to happen you. This is how you will grow. This is how I will grow. I will face a promise. Peniel, Stephen, that God will give you residency in this land. Amen. 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 That a promise is over your life. But there's a problem. You have to wait. And you receive the promise, Gehiso. And then there is the gap. And it's what you do in the gap that either qualifies you or disqualifies you for entering further on. Now, it's, 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 the problems come in all shapes and sizes. One of the greatest stories on promises was Olaf, a friend of ours. He's German. He, he had prayed for his mother. She wasn't saved. He was very close to her. And he had prayed for her to be born again. For years, fasted, prayed and fasted, witnessed, prayed. Nothing. His mother was stone cold towards God. And then one day, God spoke to him. And he said this, great, great word. He said, you will know that your mother is saved before she dies. And Olaf was over the moon. Now, he knew he heard. He knew that he knew, you know, one of those concrete words. It was God. She will be saved. So he's on cloud nine. He goes over, talks to her, witnesses to her. No response. He expected her to respond after that word. But no, he said, okay, okay, no, no, no problem. So he would go back and witness again. No response. He says, okay, my God will come through. And the years go by, and she got sick. She ended up in hospital, and he's going to, it's going to happen soon. I'm going to know. God said I would know that she was saved. And then the phone rings to say she's dead. I had a promise. God hasn't kept his promise. She's dead, and I don't know. And he tells his testimony of how he, you know, rebelled against God, 
screamed at God. And she was dead. They did the funeral. He was in her apartment. He was clearing out her apartment. And the phone rang. And he picked up the phone, and it was a woman to speak to his mother. And he said, my mother's not here. My mother died. And the woman on the phone said, your mother died? I, I, I was with your mother. Last week I was with your mother. I said, well, who are you? She said, well, I am a Christian. And I was in the hospital bed beside your mother the night before she died. I led her to Christ. She died saved. And Olaf just thought, God, why did I doubt you? Why did I doubt you? You said that I would know. And because she was dead, I thought there was no way that you could let me know. But there was. And he was humble enough to come back and explain the mistake. Isn't that brilliant? Isn't that awesome? And why would God do such a thing? To increase his faith. To increase his faith in the gap so that next time he gets a promise he won't just walk away from God or if it's not working out the way he thinks he'll hang on there and wait ultimately trusting that God can make this all work out which he did in that case and he will for you also. So promises, there are so many promises. That's not the problem. <laughs> the promise is not the problem. There's promises everywhere, all through your Bible. And I've got no doubt that, that God will want to speak to you today, if you're willing, and speak a promise into your life. But I just wonder, are you willing and ready for the next bit? The problem that will come that will deny that. It may be manna and quail when you were expecting milk and honey. And how we treat God, how we judge Him so quickly when things don't work the way we think. Principles are important. And that's where Joshua succeeded. Joshua obeyed the principles that made him qualify for the inheritance, the, the uh, promises that God had given him. Now, I told you that one thing I really wanted in my life was this church. I was in Dublin. I've told you before, I wanted, I mean, I really wanted. <laughs> I really, 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 really wanted this church and to come here and be the pastor here. And I was here for a month. And it was my last Sunday. I was leaving the church. I hope you don't mind me sharing this, John. I was leaving the church just saying goodbye to everyone. And John Cowan pulled me aside. He was the only one with enough guts to do it, I think. And he, he said, you shouldn't be going. This, this is not right. You should be the pastor here. I turned to John. I said, thanks, John, because that's an encouragement to me. But you know what? There's principles. I've got a promise in my spirit. I believe I'm coming here. But there's principles, kingdom principles. I've got to go back and obey the structure. So leave it with me. I will return to my post. I will tell my boss. And I will do what I'm told. I will obey the principles. And as long, that's my problem. That's my problem. I hold my post and God will work for me. God will come through for me. And it's a long story, but God had to move me halfway across the world to L.A. to be in a meeting where I was able to engineer this. It's, it's fantastic, you know. God, God will move for you provided you obey the principles of the kingdom, which is not to be rebellious, not to just try and take it by force like Moses did with the Egyptian, but understand if you... If you give value 
to the thing that God is presenting to you, believe me, you will obey the, you will obey the principles. Do you understand me? It's people who have no value for the kingdom or the things of God. They'll do anything. So trust me, folks, there is a, there is a way to get to the provision of God. And I don't see enough of it, and I'm sure you'll agree with me. We don't see enough of it in this church, in my life, or in yours. But I have experienced it. Every time you preach a message, if, if I'm doing a series on faith, guess what I'll be challenged on? Faith. And things will happen to me through the week. Things will take place and God will challenge my faith. And the reason for that is it's pointless me coming here and speaking words because you won't change. You won't get inspired. I need to practice what I preach, if you like. When we did this series, ah, sorry, I can't remember, four years, I think, ago, I was, I was, my head was full of promises. Thinking about the promises of God, I know that it's a word for you and me, but for you. And listen to this silly little example, but it's not maybe quite so silly. Friday or whatever, and I'm getting ready for Sunday, and I need my notes. And I haven't got any ink in my printer. So I go over to Asda, and I go up to my ink section here, and I look down, and I look, ah, oh, where my ink's supposed to be, there's a little ticker saying, this product is temporarily out of stock. So I thought, okay, no problem. Listen, listen. I go to walk away. Now remember, I'm preaching on promises in two days' time. I go to walk away and God speaks to me. And he says, your ink is here. And I go, oh dear me. Now it was God, folks. I know my voice. I know the devil's voice. And I, know, I know God's voice. That was God's voice. And I, I sort of think, okay, my ink is here, is it? So I go back to the ink and I think I figured it out. I think the ink's in the wrong place. That's what it will be. So I start going through the inks. It's not there. So I, what are you going to do? I've got a promise. i got a big problem here because no ink. Your ink is here. So I just thought about it just 20 seconds. Do you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to go and stand here. I'm just going to stand here. The ink is here. I will be here. I'm going to wait right here. You know, if anybody comes up and asks you what you're doing, you wouldn't tell them, would you? <laughs> but what do you think I'm doing? I'm waiting on ink to fall out of heaven. Ink, right. So I stand there, and I probably waited not even one minute. And a little Asda guy with a shopping trolley comes round the bend, <laughs> putting stuff on the shelves. I thought, is he going to bring my ink? And he comes down, rumbles around, puts, hey, that's my ink! Thank you, there was my ink. True. You see? Now, do you know what that is? That is a good father in heaven who sees something very important. God doesn't waste his time. And he doesn't waste his words. So what is it then, Father? There's something important. Not about the ink. There's something important about promises, isn't there, Father? That I don't get. And they don't get. You want me to have a promise-led life. Well, how can I do that? If I haven't even got any promises. If I haven't taken the time to seek him and find out what he wants and then get a target, how can I have a promise-led life? Right? So God gave me the word, that's my promise, and then everything starts coming alive. I come alive inside. My spirit is engaged because I'm engaged with God, right? He's given me a word. I've got motivation within me. And that's what's missing, I believe, in many of our lives. Next slide, please. 
Scripture, the big picture of Scripture, explains your life in one of these three places. You can answer your own place. You can answer for yourself. Bible says we are either in Egypt, Lodabar, or the promised land. Egypt is the lost, those who have never been saved, not born again. Lodabar in Hebrew means wilderness, but it also means the land of no promise. So now remember what they did. They left Egypt. They went into Lodabar. They went into the wilderness, and they did not obey Moses, did they? They disobeyed Moses, and that was a principle. They broke one of the principles. And so many of them, in fact, 600,000 of them died in Lodabar. Some of the harshest pieces of Scripture in the whole Bible are right there. When God said, because you didn't honor the promises or respect the promises I gave you, you will all die in the desert. Terrible harshness, it seems to us, but God doesn't take it lightly when we abuse His grace. Believe me, that's a good example of it right there. But some of them, how many of them entered the promised land? Two. Two people. Joshua was one of those. Joshua and Caleb. Two people who obeyed the principles and went, all the statistics are not good. Sorry about that. But don't make. The scripture says that these things are written so that you will learn. I hope you're not in Egypt. And anybody here who's not saved this morning. You need to repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus like others here have done. Amen. Come out of Egypt. Come out of Egypt. And then we have to get through the wilderness, as it were, or get through the world, get through Lodabar, and fix your eyes upon the promises that God will lay before you and fight. Remember, there's a lot of fighting here. They had a lot of fighting to do in the wilderness. Next slide, please, guys. These are the, these are the three principles that they did not obey those who died. The, the obedience towards Moses was an enormous point to God. When they disobeyed Moses, God took it personally. And, and I encourage all of you, I, I'm a very obedient person in terms of church life. And, but you know, in, in 10 years in Dublin, Jeanette, the Irish can be very rebellious, right? Believe me, they can. And I tried to teach the church there they, many of the members there, they th would look at me as a creep. You always do what you're told. Look at you as a lackey. Give me some other words. You know what I mean? And many times I said to the guys, you don't get it, do you? You just don't get it. You don't understand, do you? T tell me, what did David think of Solomon? Probably thought he was crazy. Did David obey Solomon? Uh, uh, did David obey uh, Saul? Saul, sorry. Did David obey Saul? David obeyed Saul in everything. Who became king? David. Why? Because he was a creep? No. Because David knew. David knew. God, I will not sin against the Lord's anointed. David thought in his head, "It doesn't matter what people think of me. It doesn't matter what I think of Saul." What matters is I am going to enter the promises. And that means obedience, no matter what my leader is like. It's not about being a creep. That's not it. That's so worldly, so playground. And my advice to you, obey Moses. Obey your leaders. Because when you get a temptation within you to be rebellious towards your cell leader, your disciple, your pastor, I would just question you if you're on the brink of a promise. 
If God's got you right, ready to present, and then the devil wants to try and get you off course so that you become rebellious and you lose that inheritance, be careful. The darkest hour is often before the dawn. So obedience was critical to inheritance of promises. The complaining was probably the biggest. And this surprises me, folks, but I've got to accept God is God, right? He can be whatever way He wants. God hates complaints. Remember? He said He would not let them enter the promised land because He said, I heard you. Remember? I heard you grumbling in your tents. They were grumbling because of they wanted garlic. Sorry, they were. They wanted the food of Egypt. And he took that so... I mean, God really responded to that and said because of that, they wouldn't enter. Um, on that second point, folks, don't complain. As we sit here, I mean, I, I won't go on about it because you already know. As you sit here comfortably in this church this morning, there are 8,000 Eritrean Christians locked up in containers. Some of them are bound. There are 2,000 pastors in that number. They tie them back like this so that their limbs go dead. And that's how they kill them. They leave them for months on end until their limbs are useless. 8,000 Christians. And all they have to do is say, I don't believe in Jesus. And they let them go. And here we are here. May God forgive us if we complain. Do you understand me? If you can see it from God's perspective, and if you can see the world and the suffering and the heroism, the martyrdom that is going on all around the world, and then we complain about weather or having to do a bit of work this morning in the church or something, don't do it, guys. Don't do it. We need to see the big picture. God took it very, very, very harsh against them when they complained. We need to be grateful. So my, my point to you this morning, very simply, let me ask you this. Don't answer it. What's your problem? What's your problem? And is that problem connected to a promise? Are there problems in your life that you need to... You're having trouble with this person, that person? Having trouble with this situation, that situation? Where did the problems come from? And are those problems connected to a promise that God spoke to you? Do you understand me? Last year, you prayed, God, please. And God spoke a word. And he said, I will take you to this place. I will do this. I will do that. But then maybe you just forget. Because we do. But in order to get there, you problem, problem. And I think we disconnect the problems from the promises. You understand me? I think the devil does a great job of disconnecting the problems in our lives from the promises that are over the hill. And I've got to understand, if I can take Jeanette's situation as an example, this has been a great year. She's doing so well. But it's not easy, folks. Not easy. But we made a decision that night outside your house, Gordon. We made a decision, because that was the day we, we got our letter. And we sat in that car, and I said, I tell you this, God has been good to us for 20-odd years. This is the first problem. What am I going to do, walk away? 20 years freewheeling we've had. What are we going to do now? Because a little problem come? Not a little problem, big problem. We will serve God. We will not complain. We'll put our shoulder to the wheel. We'll stick at it. Stick at it. 
And it's incredibly difficult traveling. Incredibly difficult. It's hard anyway, but it's, it's, it's triple, quadruple hard. But we'll stick at it and not complain and count it a blessing and count it great favor to be called to, to suffer in some ways like that. Hallelujah! Bring it on! Don't want to die like Hitler. Join the Eritreans. Join Tarek as he goes to Afghanistan. Change your life. Change your mentality. And I look at our situation, Jeanette, and instead of looking at the problem, I choose to think over your head, what's the promise here? What's the promise here? Satan, you want me to focus on the problem. You want me to focus on everything, every problem I've got. Well, you know what? I'm going to focus on the promise here. Because there's many. The book's full of them. And I think, and I'll ponder on the things that God has said. That will be where I, I will lift up my eyes to the hills where my help comes from. And you will not drag them down. And God will deliver me, you, and he is, from this situation. What's your problem? You've forgotten the promise. You've forgot, you've disconnected the problems in your life from the promises that God wants you to see. Your eyes have come down. Well, he is my redeemer and the lifter of my head. Father, I pray these people this morning that you will open their eyes and that they will take a fresh analysis of the problems facing them. People problems, financial problems, health problems. And then you will impart to them the promises that are beyond those problems. And just take a moment to think about your life, assess your life, and let God enter it this morning. Lord, many people here, many good people, and many problems also. But God, Joshua and Isaac, they knew how to accept problems. What problems to accept and get through and what problems to fight and reject. And this morning, I pray the great wisdom of God down in this place. We will enter the promise. Enter the promised life. And God, I pray for a spirit of wisdom, insight, revelation, and knowledge to fill this place. That we would see your hand in the future. Lift up your eyes to the hills where your help comes from. Your help comes from the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise you, God.